and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thank you so much for tuning in wherever you are around the UK and indeed the rest of the world. And as ever, we've got quite a lot to cram in in our time together, making sense of it all. I'm recording this in Edinburgh. Dun, 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 dun. And yeah, it's all buzzing here. It's as packed as it's ever been, this festival, it seems to me. And I am live every day. The show will be different every day because we are delving deep and there is so much to make sense of. And I'm on. You could start your day at the Edinburgh Festival every day if you want it. It'll be different. 11 o'clock, the space, the Symposium Hall, lovely theatre in uh, Hill Square, bang in the centre of uh, Edinburgh, uh, 11 o'clock each day, and you can get your tickets at the Edinburgh Fringe website. And yeah, we will have much fun together, but also explore the wild winds and darkness of British politics. So uh, yeah, say different each day. Do come along and emerge each day thinking, well, at least we feel a bit better amongst ourselves, you know, even if we haven't really made sense of anything at all. And then back in London, it's hard to imagine when you're in Edinburgh, you know, with London and its heat wave. You know what? I'm recording this in torrential rain. Well, I'm not in the rain, but it's raining. Then back in London, uh, September the 19th, live at King's Place for the start of the Liz Truss era special. And tickets for that are on sale. And that one is being streamed. A lot of you have kindly asked if the Edinburgh shows are being streamed. They're not. But that one is as well. But hopefully most of you will come along because that is an historic evening, September the 19th. So hope to see you in Edinburgh. I know a lot of you are coming, which is just brilliant. And we can all meet up and stuff, which is uh, what kind of being in a live theatre makes all the difference. Not that we're not kind of together. Uh, during the uh, podcast. And if it's okay with all of you, I'd like to reflect on what we are already seeing, really, uh, as the extraordinary politics of the energy crisis. This is inevitable. When you have a sudden, dramatic uh, leap in energy prices, to the point uh, where they are unaffordable, not just for a few people, but for quite a lot of people, this has a huge explosive impact on politics. It did in the 1970s. I'm, I'm writing a book on turning points at the moment, and I've just decided, partly as a result of what we're living through now, to include the quadrupling of oil prices uh, in the early 1970s. It was a result of the Six-Day War in the Middle East. Oil prices in the UK quadrupled at a point when miners here were already becoming muscular in terms of their industrial strength, but suddenly they acquired this great economic weight uh, because oil became so expensive and they were churning out an alternative. And it was a moment that was... uh, huge in British politics. And it changed so much. In effect, it brought down the Heath government in many different ways. And this will have profound consequences too. It's already starting to happen. It's really interesting, uh, the intervention of Gordon Brown. 
and his precise ideas for dealing with this crisis. And it's fascinating because I followed uh, Gordon Brown very closely uh, during the financial crash. In fact, I followed him very closely throughout his uh, time in British politics. I wrote a book about him called uh, Whatever It Takes, Gordon Brown and New Labour. Um, And what is so interesting about his ideas as to how to deal with this energy crisis is they are partly rooted in his experiences during that financial crash. And as you will know, or most of you will know, one of his ideas is basically to focus in on the energy companies um, and to see what more they can do. And if they can't deliver, he's advocating what he calls very characteristically temporary public ownership. But even though that word temporary shows that his cautious streak is still intact, it's very interesting that he is even contemplating at all recommending forms of public ownership. Because early on in the build-up to the financial crash, Gordon Brown couldn't really bear contemplating the idea of public ownership of any of the banks. So if you remember, the financial crisis of 2008 had a dramatic prequel, really, hors d'oeuvre. That's the wrong word, because hors d'oeuvre implies pleasure. This was nerve-wracking and grim, um, which was the near collapse of Northern Rock in the summer of 2007. Incidentally, it had, and this is relevant to uh, when we get the new Prime Minister in, the start of the Liz Truss era. Again, I can't believe I'm uttering those words, the Truss era. Northern Rock, in the summer of 2007, was on the edge of total collapse. People were queuing to get their money out, assuming they wouldn't be able to do it and all the rest of it. And Gordon Brown uh, said to Ed Balls, his closest confidant, Uh, This is going to finish off my honeymoon. People will blame me for this. I've been Chancellor, uh, and um, this is going to get me into real trouble. The opposite happened. Uh, Brown's ratings went up even more, and Labour's lead in the poll went up even more. And Gordon Brown, for the first time, said to Ed Balls, Blimey, if, if this is making us more popular, maybe we should think about an early election. They hadn't talked about it before, but this swayed him a bit. We know in the end, fatally, or maybe not fatally, actually, he didn't call it. But to go back to his thinking at the time, uh, obviously he knew they had to put money into Northern Rock. But even though The Economist, not known as a sort of Marxist magazine, the FT, similarly not known as a kind of Trotskyite kind of underworld newspaper, Vince Cable, the then uh, Treasury spokesman of for the Lib Dems, regarded then as a kind of profit, really. They were all calling for the public ownership of Northern Rock. And Gordon Brown, who could be uh, more daring than Tony Blair in his thinking and in his planning for what was possible in what they both shared as the constrained world of British politics, if you were representing the Labour Party. Uh, But on this, he was kind of with Blair in never daring to utter the two words public ownership, partly for fear of headlines about Labour going back to the 1970s and all that kind of stuff. 
so he was very reluctant indeed to um, take over Northern Rock. There is a funny story of his, his mate and then chief whip, Nick Brown, was in Cuba when the um, temporary, definitely temporary, not permanent, uh, public ownership of uh, Northern Rock was finally belatedly announced when Gordon Brown realised there was no other option. And he phoned uh, Nick Brown, who was uh, saying Cuba, uh, he said, we're taking over Northern Rock, Nick. We're taking it over. It's coming back into public ownership. It's the only option we've got. And Nick Brown said, uh, oh, that's uh, very interesting uh, news. I'll tell the Cuban regime. I'm sure they'll be thrilled. I'm sure you'll get a call of congratulations from Castro. And there was a pause. And Brown said, only temporary, only temporary. And Nick Brown said, no, no, it's a joke, Gordon. But you can see how worried he was. And sure enough, those two right-wingers masquerading as modernisers, David Cameron and George Osborne, then in opposition, uh, held a joint press conference saying exactly that, back to the 1970s. They didn't really explain what they would do, but they tried, and maybe successfully, to evoke... Uh, a kind of return to that stormy decade. Brown had deep reservations about the idea of public ownership. And here he is now recommending, temporary, temporary, but the possibility at least of public ownership as a way of controlling the out-of-control energy prices. And I think this is deeply significant. It shows, you can sort of measure it, the way external events demand different responses. And to return to one of my familiar themes, I promise you, I'm only going to say it for about 10 seconds. This is not 1994 to 1997. A period of time in which certainly Gordon Brown would not even have recommended temporary public ownership for anything. Indeed, he was recommending, I think, the privatisation of air traffic control. And so suddenly, use Gordon Brown as a very interesting barometer, the idea of public ownership so that a government is able to plan for a crisis and act in a crisis effectively is unquestionably back on the agenda. And uh, it is applied in other areas as well. Look at how train companies that have gone bust have to be taken over. A lot of these markets aren't working. And this is not a kind of, well, I was going to say it's not a right-left thing. Of course it is on some levels. But given it's uh, this government that at times have taken over train companies and taken over all kinds of things in the pandemic, you can see how... In the midst of deep crises, levers have to be pulled. And taboos in uh, small C, big C, conservative, England at least, are broken. In that context, um, although uh, Keir Starmer returned from holiday and made some relatively incremental announcement about further help for uh, the bills in relation to meters that are a rip-off and so on. That's it was very New Labour 94 to 97. Choose one small incremental measure to symbolise your concern for people. I think that sort of sounded 
uh, out of joint, out of place with the times, that incremental measure. And I know he knows he has got to do more to convey change in these seismic times than these small symbolic things that I suspect some of those around him believe is all that is possible. And of course, uh, we have heard since of much more uh, sweeping radical measures, as we have heard from the leader of the Lib Dems, Ed Davey, as well. And you can see how uh, the scale of the crisis, the nature of the challenge, is uh, demanding a new kind of politics, at least from the non-conservative parties, for, for now. And that's very interesting. I mean, in the sort of Nick Clegg uh, Lib Dem era, uh, I remember, and the Tories were very sharp to be aware of this because it wasn't where most voters thought he was. But he used to say to me in the build-up to that um, famous 2010 election, um, what's absolutely clear to me, he said, this is Nick Clegg, many times, uh, social democracy has failed. Uh, this government, the Labour government of the time, has shown that social democracy has failed and we need to find new ways of of, of working. Um, he was what one of his close confidants said to me. He was a Dutch liberal, uh, small L liberal and big L Dutch liberal. And so people around Cameron were picking up on this, that he was actually closer to them in many respects. But look at what Ed Davey is saying in terms of intervention. What Keir Starmer uh, is saying in terms of the need for intervention on a big scale. And you are seeing a reshaping of politics. Now, it is utterly surreal, and it will be analysed for many years to come, that the governing party has no policy yet on what they're going to do about these bills. Uh, It's almost comical that you have these two figures going around the country debating when to implement tax cuts. Sunak now has come up with uh, some propositions uh, to deal with energy bills. Uh, Liz Truss is saying that she's going to wait, but meanwhile there's £28 billion worth of tax cuts coming your way, which will sort of you know, give people 50p here and there and these massive bills coming. And they love it. They love it. She's well ahead. The Liz Truss era, starting September the 19th at King's Place, starting at September the 5th, actually, but you know what I mean. That's when we make sense of it all once it's underway. We'll be doing some of that at the Edinburgh Festival too. It is utterly bizarre. And then (laughs) last week there was a meeting of the oil companies in number 10 and Boris Johnson wasn't wasn't going to attend, but he was, I've read that, you know, I don't know whether this is true, but I read that he was so bored being prime minister in the midst of this crisis um, that he came along anyway for a bit. And you know, what, what, what are we doing? What are we doing? It is an astonishing vacuum. By the way, Kistama, so I think he hit the wrong note with his return with the sort of incremental policy, which must have been in the grid or something to show that they are ready for action without trying to preempt their big announcement on Monday. Wholly unfairly attacked for going on holiday. I mean, he's not prime minister. He hasn't got the power to act now. And although arguably they're a bit late with their plan, and I like the word plan, it implies a thing that is bigger than a single policy, like the windfall tax. The insulation proposition is really important. Most of our houses, are like we might as well be out in a 
gale force wind in a field because they're so poorly insulated. And other countries in Europe have really successfully, this is an example of active government making a difference, insulated homes. So that kind of tackles the crisis in two different ways. It obviously cuts fuel bills, but addresses the never-ending demand for fuel. It's a good part of his plan. And you need a plan in opposition. I've read some people on Twitter, I don't like this term plan. Osborne used it very cleverly after the financial crash. He had a plan. I mean, it was all over the place, but he had a plan. And anyway, Starmer on holiday, for goodness sake, these people, they work seven days a week. The pressure is ceaseless and relentless and will intensify in the build-up to the general election. Let him have a holiday. If he'd come back and announced it last week, it would still, you know, the government, Johnson wouldn't have popped up, what a good idea, we'll implement it now. And, you know, meanwhile, Sunak and Truss are off in a world of their own with about 50 Tory party members. That was not the problem. Uh, The problem is with the governing party, frankly, who should be at this hammer and tongs. I think there's one thing Keir Starmer could have said. Look, if I were Prime Minister, with the power now to come up with a package to reassure frightened people that we are going to deal with this. I wouldn't have been on holiday, nor would the Chancellor, nor would the Business Secretary, etc., etc. But, you know, leader of the opposition with no power to bring about the change now, let him have a holiday. By the way, one other thing about Gordon Brown. It's really interesting how uh, people are perceived differently depending on circumstance. And I've noticed now even Tories remarking respectfully uh, about his interventions this summer and generally, actually, how he's conducted his post-prime ministerial career. And one of the things I think that will change, it's a minor thing, but quite interesting just about how people's perceptions change, is this Tory leadership contest uh, for the governing party has been really bad for that governing party. It's just highlighted division within the government. It's opened that door, uh, usually protected by collective cabinet responsibility. And that door will never be firmly closed again. And Gordon Brown, of course, famously, when he finally got the chance to take over from Tony Blair, didn't want a leadership contest. And it seemed really perverse. You know, it was like something out of Monty Python that summer of 2007. uh, Gordon travelled the country in a leadership contest where there was no other candidate. It felt sort of, you know, kind of Soviet and weird. And subsequently, you know, when he was the subject of various coups and all the columnists went for him, even though he was responding to a global economic crisis with a depth that we would die for now, uh, you know, they were all attacking him. You know, and, and a lot of the theory was he should have faced a full contest uh, in 2007. But look what happens when there is a full contest, when a party is in government. All kinds of divisions are exposed and they won't go away. To give one obvious example, when uh, Liz Truss begins to implement her tax cuts, if it is her, I assume it will be, uh, Rishi Sunak will be interviewed from every possible outlet about his reaction to it. 
the, the, the tax cuts which he has condemned as fantasy economics. One of many examples. He won't, I suspect, be in the cabinet. Um, and if he is, he'll have to pretend he agrees with them, which will be interesting. Gosh, the idea that I'm against them. Gosh, he's always saying gosh. So, yeah, we are watching politics being remade, as we did in the uh, 70s with the quadrupling of the oil price. And, and, and the price is as planned to go up. And Ofgem, by the way, useless. The, the, you, the, this market cannot be effectively regulated for all kinds of reasons. It's a flawed market. And Ofgem just sort of casually saying, oh, yeah, we're, we're sort of, we'll lift the price cap every three months now so it'll go up again in January and so on. This is not the way to operate in a crisis like this. And at the moment, the projections are more dramatic than the quadrupling of the oil prices in the early 70s. Consequences. There will be many, including a reconfiguration of uh, politics. Talking of which, we now go to your question. So let's have a look at uh, a few of your questions. Jim Oddy from Felixstowe says, this is quite interesting about, again, politics and the way things change and what acquires significance. Jim writes from Felixstowe, on the day of the 2015 general election, I had my brother-in-law staying with me, visiting to attend a local beer festival. Oh, that must have been a nice thing to do before sitting down to that election. As the results started to come in, Theresa May was the first politician to be interviewed by Andrew Neil. I turned to my brother-in-law saying, I haven't seen her during the campaign. It's all been Cameron and Osborne on the Tory side. He agreed. Yet just over a year later, Cameron and Osborne had gone and May was PM. What a strange world we live in. The 2019 election was all Johnson on the Tory side, and here we go again. Yeah, that's Jim, I can't remember much about Liz Truss in the 2019 election at all. And, and indeed, nothing much about Rishi Sunak either. And uh, yet here we are again witnessing the rise of uh, trusts without, incidentally, much intense scrutiny. Um, she, like Johnson, has avoided the uh, the Andrew Neil interview, etc. Yeah, isn't it weird, the kind of fleeting appearances of figures who appear omnipotent and then someone else who hadn't really featured in an election rises to the top? It's all... Politics is a sort of fascinating uh, art form uh, without clear rules. Uh, yeah, thank you. That was really interesting. Howard Bryant. Uh, yeah, now Howard's got this theory. We're on to electoral reform a bit today. Those of you who are fans are still keenly awaiting the electoral reform special. Some have even asked whether there'll be an electoral reform special during uh, the Edinburgh Festival. Well, it will feature, that's for sure, because you'll make sure it will. You're in control in these shows. Um, I'm not planning a special. I, I'm still psyching out for the podcast special. But anyway, Howard Bryant says, without first past the post, it's unlikely, I believe, that we would have seen Brexit and also unlikely that the Tory party would have adopted Brexit as a policy. This refers to my comment that the Conservatives, UK has the only mainstream election-winning party 
to, in the end, back leaving the European Union. None of the other members did. He puts it down to first past the post. It follows, says Howard, that changing the electoral system in the UK is no esoteric tinkering of interest only to political nerds. When first past the post has been core to one of the biggest political and economic disruptions for the UK population in my lifetime, it matters. Um, yeah, no, that's a good point, actually. You know, uh, I sometimes worry that in the midst of all the dramas, you know, with cost of living, etc., etc., to analyse whether we should do AV, STV and all these other things, uh, I, you know. But I, it's a good point, Howard. There's another one coming from uh, another emailer about this coming up. All the best from a Sonny Nebworth. Oh, yeah, that's cool, Howard. Uh, Sonny Nebworth. Uh, enjoy the sun while it lasts. It's been lasting one hell of a long time there. Not in Edinburgh, as I speak, as I said earlier. Now, Stuart Grant who is incidentally coming up to Edinburgh. That's the kind of thing uh, the uh, Rock and Roll Politics Cooperative does, coming up from, uh, I'm not quite sure where you live, Stuart, but I know it's uh, near London. Now, Stuart has been doing an interesting game he's been playing. He's the one who presented me with Union Jack socks at King's Place as a tribute to Lord Frosty Frost. And there will be a, an equivalent handover at an Edinburgh show when Stuart arrives. Anyway, he's been playing a game. You've got some time on your hands, Stuart, to do this, but it's a very interesting one, actually. A potential Prime Minister who, for one reason or another, never even got as close as to run in a leadership contest for either of our two dominant parties. Now, this is really interesting. Here's a team of 11 from each side um, of leadership candidates we never had. Now, this is the Labour side. So these people have never even stood in a leadership contest uh, for the at full leader. So one or two have stood for deputy leader and so on. Labour. Barbara Castle, Robin Cook, Donald Dewar, Harriet Harman, Alan Johnson, Gerald Kaufman, David Owen, James Pennell, John Reid, Jack Straw, Shirley Williams. I wouldn't have included some of those, uh, James. That's, that's the one I wouldn't have included. I don't think James Spinell was ever close to it, but uh, some of the others could have done it. And you're right, they never stood for leader. Why? Maybe a podcast special on that. For the Tories, Kenneth Baker, Norman Fowler, Sir Keith Joseph. He almost did, Stuart. Uh, he made some cock-ups in the late 74, early 75 and Margaret Thatcher stepped in. Tom King, Nigel Lawson, John Moore. Yeah, he fell quickly. George Osborne, Chris Patton, Cecil Parkinson, Amber Rudd, Norman Tebbit. None of them did. And you think about these, how prominent some of them were. Not all, Stuart, but prominent. Why did they never stand? I think some of them really regret it, by the way. I know Harriet Harman wonders why she didn't stand in 2010 when she had been acting leader. Alan Johnson doesn't regret it, actually. He's always asked, why didn't you go for it? And, you know, but there are some of the others just it never felt right. Shirley Williams kept on losing her seat and was never in the commons at the crucial moment. But anyway, interesting. Why didn't they even get to that point in their bid for leadership? Now, thank you, Stuart. See you in Edinburgh, along with as many of you as can make it. Now, back to electoral reform. Uh, Yasmin Ali, Ali has written a, a long and detailed 
refutation to some of my doubts. I have to, without doing a spoiler, my doubts are reducing, Yasmin, you'll be pleased to hear. But anyway, I haven't got time, Yasmin, to go through all of them. Uh, your refutations of my uh, claims. One of my arguments is that the two main parties are big coalitions in themselves, and that's quite an effective way of electing a coalition you sort of know about in advance. So here's to Yasmin. Let's start with your contention that British parties are coalitions already, but that voters know and understand those coalitions, and so we know what we're voting for when we choose a Labour or a Tory coalition. We aren't locked out of smokeless rooms where cynical deals are cobbled together. But, this is her refutation, the coalitions in political parties are now so dysfunctional that they don't produce stability, but rather the opposite. Much attention has been paid ironically to Labour over the years from the entryism of Militant in the 80s to Corbyn and Momentum leading to the myth of Labour requiring a strong leader who can stand up to them, etc. Yeah, the, the strong leader thing uh, is one of my preoccupations too. It's, you know, whenever a leader claims to be strong, or she, they're usually behaving weakly, I find. Anyway, arguably the Tories, and over a similar time span, have also been riven by factionalism from powerlism, which was most successful, despite his exile from the party, in sowing europhobia, than in its anti-immigration populism, though that's back again with a vengeance. They are almost, they're essentially unleadable now by anyone from any wing of the party. Okay, so the defence of first-past-the-post, this is Yasmin, that it produces stable government from settled internal coalition parties has broken down. And she refutes a few other things. Yeah, I think, you know, both the emails about electoral reform this week are powerful. Please await the electoral reform special. Uh, It will come when we have got through some of the current uh, dramas. Uh, Claire Mackey writes, Claire, I know you told me how to pronounce your surname. I think that's right. I know you spelt it phonetically. Uh, Who walks on the Walthamstow wetlands and calls herself Walthamstow Wetlands Claire. Great Walthamstow Wetlands. Great place to cycle and walk. They have a mysterious quality. Anyway, Claire writes, the Conservative leadership contest has been a depressing process so far, and I found the lack of engagement with the climate crisis particularly worrying. I thought that Liz Truss's recent statement that one of the most depressing sights when you're driving through England is seeing fields that should be full of crops or livestock, full of solar panels. Claire says this bordered on the insane. How much of what she says do you think she actually believes? And how much is just a show for the bonkers grassroots? Well, that is an interesting question. We don't know for sure, any of us, frankly including, I suspect, Liz Truss, there's no doubt, and on this I really don't blame them, they are targeting the electorate they've got to win over, and they know that electorate depressingly well. So that's part of it, and she's been much better at targeting it uh, than Rishi Sunak, because even though neither of them are particularly supple, convincing politicians, she's a bit more developed than he is as a politician. She's just been around longer. Uh, She's been tested in different ways for longer. Uh, His rise was meteoric and has left him ill-prepared for the political guile required in a leadership contest. So that's part of it. 
And yet she has said throughout her career some pretty wacky things. How much of it is her and how much of it is targeted to the Tory leader? Did you see that poll uh, where, you know, she's way ahead with the elder wing of this membership and Sunak's ahead with the younger ones, but there are more of the older. Anyway, Claire, we're soon going to find out soon. Uh, yeah, try and get along. It's not far from Waltham West, Walthamstow Wetlands to the start of the Liz Truss era special at King's Place on September the 19th, because she'll be in by then. We're obviously going to explore it in Edinburgh via the contest, but she's in from September the 5th, if it is her. Stuart Wool then. Uh, the political climate since Margaret Thatcher now seems more polarised and the level of scrutiny higher because of the news media and social media. Famously, Thatcher's reforms did result in business closures, unemployment and hardship. Uh, in today's media, would she have been able to carry on with iron will? Or would she have had to U-turn, as Liz may have to do when she gets the top job? Well, Stuart, I think um, social media makes politics much harder for all politicians. Um, I suspect uh, Margaret, people you say, oh, Margaret Thatcher didn't read the newspapers. She didn't really have to because she knew most of them doted on her. And it's much easier having a doted uh, newspaper climate uh, than a hostile one. Um, social media, I suspect she would not have been too swayed by. Now, Liz Truss is on Twitter quite a lot. She says she's not on it during the leadership contest because she knows the ageing Tory members aren't on Twitter. But I think she'll be back on it and influenced by it. And it just makes politics more difficult. It makes it more frenzied, speeded up. I often wonder how the likes of Harold Wilson would have coped with Twitter and so on because he was pretty neurotic with the old media. Thank you very much, Ben Harwood. Hi, Steve. Love the podcast. Oh, thank you very much. Usually listen whilst throwing a ball for a very energetic terrier. Well, I hope you can concentrate uh, with uh, that going on, Ben. I mean, you know, uh, this this involves total concentration. You don't want your terrier getting in the way of us lot. Anyway, it seems to me that the country is crying out for change, and that's in part what Brexit was about. In that context, I wonder if Labour could do a lot worse than fully adopting Andy Burnham's... Can, by the way, can you hear the seagulls? From Edinburgh, seagulls. Fully adopting Andy Burnham's stated policy platform. Replace the current voting system with PR. Replace House of Lords with elected chamber. Full participatory devolution for regions. Uh, basic income introduced. Social care provided on NHS terms. Renationalise rail. Open cooperation with left and centre-left parties to achieve this. Under the tagline of rewiring Britain. Yeah, I think uh, quite a lot of that agenda is uh, appealing. Change makers win at the moment, uh, including posing change makers uh, like uh, Liz Truss. Um, and I mean, it's easier for him to put forward ideas from being mayor of Manchester than leader of the opposition, where you have the might of the Tory newspapers scrutinising every syllable of what you're saying. Um, but some of that, I think, is meets some of the just seismic challenges any new government is going to face. Russell Shackleton from Newbury, who says, I listen on my early morning walk around the battlefield of the Civil War Battle of Newbury. 
Yeah, well, we're going through plenty of battles now, uh, Russell. Metaphorical, that's the joy of politics. It's not real battles like the one that you walk round each early morning. A lot of people, by the way, Russell, listen early in the morning to this podcast. Um, you're not alone, even if you are alone on the battlefield, so to speak. Uh, he wonders about an early election this autumn and provides many reasons why he think it might happen. Um, one of which is, of course, to do with the economy and the deepening recession, meaning that there will be a honeymoon period where an early election could take place before all hell breaks loose with the economy. I haven't got time, Russell, to, I've read all your reasons. I haven't got time to read them. I doubt it. I don't think it's impossible that a honeymoon happens and they just go for it. But I think the economic clouds will be overwhelming almost from day one and an election would look too self-interested uh, but thank you russell enjoy your early morning walks listening to all of us lot uh, on the podcast and scott creswell is the next one who you'll be listening to he says this uh, scott you know, he, i've met scott he's a he, he has been a student at york he's left uh does some great writing and says um after leaving office in 1976 Harold Wilson wrote a book reflecting on some of the prime ministers before his time. He gave judgments on Churchill, Attlee, etc. Many more. Do you or any listeners remember when he did a television series in 1977 with David Frost, all about the historical prime minister figures? Uh, Wilson and Frost discussed PMs and their lives. <clears throat> I think it was on ITV. It's a strange piece of political television that's forgotten, and I only discovered its existence today at the BFI in London. Do you have memories of it? Well, Scott, you know, you've met me. You know I'm too young to have memories of it. But here's another twist. I do know about it, and I have seen bits like you of it. And it is interesting. And again, it tells you something about the way politicians are misperceived, because there is this idea that Wilson by 76 was already kind of losing his memory quite badly and was old and knackered and so on. And yet he had quite an active period until the memory did go, tragically. He had other illnesses as well. I think the strain of leading that party really had a huge physical and mental impact on him. Um, but for a few years, he was still doing some very interesting things. And he did a lot of television, actually. There's stuff on YouTube of him on Parkinson and uh, presenting a chat show. And he did this series, yeah, uh, to accompany a book, uh, Prime Minister on Prime Ministers. And he, he interviewed by David Frost. And some of it is quite interesting, his judgments from the perspective of being a prime minister. That was the hook. Uh, yeah, and some of it was uh, good. And uh, I did watch it. The, the book was absolutely slated. I, there was a review by the historian A.J.P. Taylor, who I sometimes quote on this podcast. The review uh, in The Observer was just all the errors he had identified in the book without any other comment. Uh, you know, kind of 900 words of just one error after another, according to A.J.P. Taylor. But some of his judgments were interesting and astute, and he had just, you know, he'd been prime minister a couple of years earlier. And and he he, he did some interesting projects, Wilson, um, when he was still able to. And, uh, you know, in September, I'll be interviewing, speaking to Nick Thomas-Simmons, who's got a book out on Wilson, um, and, um, you know, the Shadow Cabinet member, uh, because he, he needs revisiting. 
And anyway, you obviously saw that series. God, Scott, you, the BFI, I didn't even know it was there. Um, but I have seen clips, God knows where, on YouTube or something. Anyway, that's it. I've got to get ready for the next show at the Edinburgh Festival. So it will be different every day with so much going on. Uh, so I hope to see you there. Uh, and if not, King Space, September the 19th. Tickets for both will be on the blurb for this podcast. Thank you so much for brilliant questions, for listening. And blimey, let's get together next week where we will once more try to make sense of it all. Thanks so much for listening this time. See you soon. Bye.